listening to the Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, joining you from New York City. And today I'm very glad to have back on the show Shannon Tiezi, the Diplomats editor-in-chief and resident China watcher. How's it going, Shannon? Good, Ankit. Always a pleasure. Yeah, I'm lucky I get to have you on the show uh, two times in a row. Um, And we have quite a bit to follow up on, I think, from our most recent episode discussing Mike Pence's speech about China and U.S.-China relations. We talked a bit about competition, and one of the issues that came up in that discussion was the issue of Taiwan, which Pence alluded to in his speech as showing an example of how democracy is compatible with Chinese culture and um it appears that the U.S.-Taiwan relationship is as interesting as ever. Um, in fact, just a few hours before we began recording this podcast, we got confirmation of the second U.S. Navy transit this year of the Taiwan Strait. Uh, the first transit occurred in July after, I believe, a gap of almost 11 years um, for a actual U.S. Navy surface combatant vessel. So the uh, Taiwan Strait is now... Um, being used more regularly by the U.S. Navy. And of course, these are international waters and the U.S. Navy claims that it's transiting lawfully, but obviously this does irk China. And Shannon, you'll recall we had this discussion on this podcast, um, I think in December 2016, right after that incredible phone call between then-President-elect Trump and Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen. It was uh, sort of unprecedented and nobody really knew where the administration was going to go with its Taiwan policy at the time. We didn't have an affirmation from Trump of the U.S.'s One China policy until his first phone call with Xi Jinping in February 2017, which sort of normalized the U.S.-China relationship. So I guess the place I want to begin with here is we're seeing tensions rise between the United States and China along all sorts of lines, economic, strategic. And the Taiwan issue is, I think, at the top of the agenda. It certainly is on the top of the agenda for Beijing, which has made clear all sorts of red lines when it comes to the nature of the U.S. relationship with Taiwan. And we've seen a stepped up uh, effort by Beijing to poach Taiwan's diplomatic allies away from it, uh, leaving Taipei more isolated than ever. So you were recently in Taiwan uh, earlier this year, and I wanted to sort of get a sense from you about what the mood right there is, um, right now is in Taiwan regarding uh, some of these, regarding the broader I guess, confrontation that's playing out between the United States and China. Do the Taiwanese sense more of an opportunity here or are the challenges also quite apparent? Um, I think they're trying very hard to frame it as an opportunity, but it's it's hard to um, kind of sidestep the major challenges that it poses. Um, I was in Taiwan with a group of reporters at the very beginning of October for um, Taiwan's National Day celebrations, and they arranged meetings for us with a bunch of government officials, um, you know, from the Mainland Affairs Council, National Development Council, um, and. One thing that's really striking is um, how much Taiwan seems to have kind of, for the moment, given up on advancing the cross-strait relationship. And this was a theme in uh, Tsai Ing-wen's National Day speech as well. Um, mm-hmm. the, the theme was kind of, we're not going to do anything to rock the boat. China knows where to find us if it changes its mind and wants to engage. But for now, we're going to focus on um, making Taiwan indispensable for the United States um, and for other countries around the world. So there's really this emphasis on shoring up Taiwan's own relationships with other countries um, as kind of a way to work around China freezing Taipei out. And to that end, there is a real sense of 
opportunity with sort of the rethink a lot of other countries are having with their relationship with China. A lot of the things that China is being criticized for, um, you know, authoritarian governance, the lack of rule of law, sort of not being a good actor when it comes to international rules and norms. Taiwan feels that those are all of its strengths. Um, so you know, even on the economic field, right, when you have the U.S.-China trade war escalating, obviously that's going to impact Taiwan when it comes to supply chains. A lot of Taiwanese products are actually finished in China and thus could be uh, subject to tariffs. But there's also a sense in Taiwan that, hey, the things that Trump doesn't like about China, we don't have those problems. We're not stealing technology from the United States. We're not forcing technology transfers from U.S. companies. Um, so maybe we can entice some of these U.S. manufacturers to even come to Taiwan. Um, of course, that's a very rosy view. Uh, it's what you would expect a government official to tell a group of journalists that, no, this is a great opportunity for Taiwan. Um, but I do think that they recognize uh, that this could potentially pose a way to reframe Taiwan um, as the international community starts to look a bit more suspiciously about China. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's really been uh, my sense, too. And you've seen that in sort of Taiwanese foreign ministry statements that have been coming out that have really been emphasizing uh, how different and how unique Taiwan is. And we see that in the administration's own rhetoric about Taiwan's uh, democratic credentials. So that really seems to be uh, where the Taiwanese are leaning in. Um, the National Day speech that Tsai gave, that was, you know, coming a few days after um, Mike Pence's address. Um, and I think, um, you know, that that language about making Taiwan indispensable and irreplaceable, um, how, how likely is that to get to one of the most fundamental problems that Taiwan is facing on the international stage right now, which is its growing diplomatic um, recognition problem and, and the isolation that comes from that. Obviously, all sorts of countries have robust economic relationships with Taipei, but the political recognition issue, uh, you know, we've, we've discussed that in more detail on this podcast before, so we don't have to retread um, ground. But I'm just curious how that might inhibit this approach by Taiwan. It's definitely a problem, and it's one, obviously, that Taiwan's government is well aware of. Um, and I think that is why you're seeing this language about making Taiwan indispensable, because they're hoping to make Taiwan a country that other countries couldn't think about cutting ties with. Um, whereas, of course, China, the mainland, would say it's not a country at all. It's, it's just a part of China that happens to be completely self-governing. <laughs> so. It, it's obviously going to be an uphill battle, right, to really bring this strategy into fruition. And we're seeing a lot of efforts along this line. Um, the Thai administration's new southbound policy, for example, where Taiwan is really trying to jumpstart its relationships with uh, South Asia, particularly India, and also countries in Southeast Asia. But when you look at what's actually happening there, you're seeing pretty small baby steps uh, because of the huge constraints on political relationships. And that even impacts things such as the aid that Taiwan can provide to these countries. You know, if you think about sort of the race to give loans to countries um, with the United States and Japan and India, kind of trying to set up an alternative framework to China's Belt and Road Initiative, Taiwan can't really engage because at the end of the day, these are government to government agreements that you're talking about when you're 
giving official development assistance. And Taiwan doesn't have official government relations with the countries along the Belt and Road for the most part. So yeah, there are there are going to be limits. Um, there are going to be challenges. And Taiwan's government has tried to frame this new strategy for dealing with that. Um, I would say they're making progress, but probably not on the, a scale that's really going to be concerning to mainland China. Mm-hmm. So going back to the U.S. relationship with Taiwan, um, I think we're seeing the Trump administration make some pretty interesting moves. Um, so we had a major arms sale last year to Taiwan comprising of uh, all sorts of systems, including, um, I believe, um, surface-to-air missiles and things like that. And just a few weeks ago, we had another arms sale um, related to uh, aviation components and spare parts uh, for military aircraft. And the day after that was announced, the approval, we saw the encounter in the South China Sea between uh, USS Decatur, the uh, U.S. Navy um, destroyer that was conducting a freedom of navigation operation, and uh, a Chinese Navy um, frigate uh, that tried to challenge it. I believe it was actually a destroyer, a Type 50C, um, a 52C. And um, the... Other issues on on this front uh, that I think have been getting some attention recently is the issue of a potential port call by a U.S. Navy vessel to China, which uh, certain Chinese officials and diplomats have made clear is a serious red line. In fact, I think there was one direct threat on the record from a Chinese diplomat that that would actually lead to a potential military conflict. But uh, the National Defense Authorization Act for 2018, um, Congress calls on the White House to actually conduct port calls. And now that we're seeing the U.S. Navy, um, you know, I've, I, I've kind of had this feeling that these recent transits are sort of a way to test the waters towards a port call, to kind of test China's tolerance. Um, and we have, uh, you know, a lot of proponents of Taiwan within this administration. Uh, for example, someone like Randy Shriver, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asian and Pacific Affairs, has long been a friend of Taiwan. He just recently said that the U.S. is also moving towards a, quote, more normal foreign military sales relationship with Taipei. So I think we can expect more arms packages out of the Trump administration. And even ignoring the pro-Taiwan sentiment of the administration, President Trump just wants to sell more weapons to anybody that's going to be willing to buy them. And Taiwan is certainly one of those uh, places. Um, So when you look at this defense picture uh, and you sort of see everything that the Trump administration has done so far, Shannon, um, do you think they're going to really push forward with something like a port call Um, that that, you know, I've I've spoken to people that see it going either way, that this could be one of the major sort of manifestations of the ongoing push towards competition that sparks a potentially another Taiwan Straits crisis. Um, You don't really know how seriously the Chinese would react, but they've made it quite clear that this would be a red line. So I'm wondering what your uh, perceptions are about where the administration might go with its um, Taiwan policy when it comes to defense issues. Um, I think definitely expecting more regular arms sales um, is probably the most obvious step. That's something that um, more pro-Taiwan analysts and policymakers had been recommending for a long time. Um, they've, you know, the criticism had been that this used to be a fairly regular thing, and um, when it was a fairly regular, you know, every year, every two years, you're selling smaller arm packages to Taiwan, China had sort of gotten used to it. That was the perception. Now, of course, if you talk to the Chinese, they'll say, no, this was never okay. We were never happy with this. We have always pushed for it to end. But the perception by some in the United States was that when this was regular, it actually caused less friction than, you know, once every four years having a massive 
maybe billion dollar arms sale. So I think that is definitely something to look for. Um, and as you mentioned, we're already sort of seeing that trend with us having had two arms deals already in the first two years of the Trump administration. Um, as for the port call, that's obviously going to be a much bigger ask. Um, China, as you as you noted, has made it very clear this would cross a fundamental red line. But interestingly, we have seen sort of what you might call a trial balloon um, for that when a naval vessel, uh, the Thomas G. Thompson, which operates under the U.S. Navy, mm -hmm. but you know it's it's not really a naval warship, right? Um, that actually docked in Kaohsiung in southern Taiwan. That's right. Now it's. It's not the first time that this vessel has docked in Taiwan. And actually, Taiwan's defense ministry has been really trying to downplay this and say this has no military or defense implications. It's not a threat to China. Um, you know, don't speculate about this leading to an actual U.S. Navy warship port call. Um, but it's tempting to do that, right? <laughs> Given what we've seen already, uh, you know, with the Taiwan Relations Act and people discussing this as a as a potential next step, so you could read that as a, as a trial balloon. Um, and you know, the U.S.-China relationship didn't implode, although it's tough to say, <laughs> given how bad the relationship is already, if that's really telling or if. You know, the Chinese had just taken this into account when they made some of their more recent moves. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, an actual warship visit would be much different. Um, and there's varying theories on how China would respond. Right, right. And I think, yeah, um, I mean, I certainly would see that as a pretty serious um, step that would draw... Um, Really, it's hard to say how the Chinese would react, but certainly I can imagine this administration actually pushing ahead with it. I've at least spoken to a few people uh, within the administration that think it's a possibility, or at least it's on the table in a very serious way. Um, the the Taiwanese MOD's sort of public diplomacy around U.S. military activity uh, in and around Taiwan is interesting to me, because as you noted, the um, they really tried to downplay that port call incident. Um, but today, uh, when the transit happened, I think actually the first source that made it public was the Taiwanese MOD, that they made it public while the vessels were sailing through. They noted that they had entered the Taiwan Strait from the south, and then CNN picks up on it, gets a statement from the U.S. Navy. So they seem to be quite excited about the fact that the U.S. Navy was sailing through the Taiwan Strait. Obviously, those two activities are very different in nature, um, but I suspect that the Taiwanese have their own red lines that are um, maybe not so apparent to us. Yeah, I, and I think that just really gets to how sensitive this port visit would be, that from their reaction to the research uh, vessels port call in Kaohsiung, it seems pretty clear that Taiwan would not be entirely comfortable hosting a U.S. naval vessel for a port visit, um, given how quickly they tried to downplay that. But U.S. vessels sailing through the Taiwan Strait is another matter, and that's something that the Taiwan has been playing up, um, at least in what we've seen so far. As you mentioned, it's only been a few hours from the time we're recording this since the news broke. Um, so there's a delicate balancing act. On the one hand, the Tsai administration has 
promised repeatedly that they're not going to do anything to harm the status quo. They're not trying to pick fights with Beijing. They're not trying to escalate tensions. But on the other side of things, they do want to show to their domestic audience that Taiwan does have international support, um, that Taiwan's relationship with its most important external partner, which is the United States, despite the lack of formal diplomatic ties, um, is progressing and it's moving forward. And so there's this constant balancing act that Taiwan itself is trying to do vis-a-vis uh, -vis China and the United States. And the United States obviously has its own calculations in that triangle as well. So yeah, things get very messy very quickly. Mm -hmm. Well, so um, let's move back a bit now and talk a bit about Taiwan's um, economy and uh, domestic politics, if, uh, if time permits. Um, so we were talking before we started recording today, Shannon, and you said that um, you picked up some pretty interesting um, signals during your trip about the efforts ongoing right now uh, in Taiwan to foster sort of domestic innovation in the economy. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Um, so as I mentioned from Tsai Ing-wen's speech, there's a very strong current that Taiwan is focusing on Taiwan right now and sort of trying to ignore the China picture to the extent that is possible. Uh, and obviously, one of the ways that you make Taiwan stronger, more self-sufficient domestically um, is the economy. And this was an interesting thing that was kind of hammered home during our trip to Taiwan, which was arranged by the government. So you got a good sense of what message they were trying to send by who we talked to and where we went. Um, there's a push to enter Taiwan into this race for the fourth industrial revolution, um, cutting edge technology, uh, like AI, blockchain, big data, um, cloud computing, things like that. Um, Taiwan has been very reliant on manufacturing, even if this is high-tech manufacturing, particularly semiconductors that we're talking about. Uh, but that also means a heavy reliance on China because a lot of those products are included into the supply chain that also passes through China. And of course, China itself is trying to cut into that industry because it wants to be a leader in semiconductors. Um, so Taiwan is, is trying to diversify its own domestic economy, where its strengths lie. Um, now, obviously, Taiwan's throwing its hat into a very crowded field. Uh, mainland China is also pushing this famously in the Made in China 2025 strategy. The U.S., of course, is trying to do this. Pretty much any advanced economy right now is looking to make its mark in the AI robotics field. Um, but that's something that Taiwan was really playing up. The officials that we spoke to were talking about, you know, creating a second growth engine for Taiwan. Um, they've even set up a new AI robotics hub in central Taiwan where they're hoping to encourage new startups. So it's something to pay attention with, if only because the government clearly wants it to happen. Um, we're, we're not seeing many results at this stage. It's still very new. But it's definitely something to keep an eye on if you're interested in this cutting edge technology. Yeah, and it's certainly, I think, an area where Taiwan has long punched over its weight. And even with China sort of stepping up now and pushing ahead with its own Made in China 2025 initiative, I think the Taiwanese have good reason to believe that this is a good place to uh, put in some public sector investment and support uh, behind these uh, economic initiatives. Um, so finally, uh, Shannon, uh, we do have um, local elections upcoming, and we've uh, I think it's been a while since we've talked about Taiwanese domestic politics on this podcast, but it's always a fascinating uh, topic, and we know how heated things can get in Taiwanese uh, democracy. 
Um, certainly. Um, but I was wondering if you'd kind of, uh, for our listeners, just lay out the uh, the state of the domestic debate on, in Taiwan now, um, including over sort of um, Tsai Ing-wen's own popularity and uh, the DPP's position more broadly and sort of what we can expect to potentially see in um, on the island going forward. Sure. Um, so local elections are coming up uh, November 24th, I believe. And this is electing, you know, mayors of Taiwan's major cities um, and also local government city councilors, things like that. So this doesn't have a direct impact on the way the central government is run, right? You're not electing a president or any national legislatures. Um that said, these elections, as local elections around the world, uh, are seen as sort of a barometer for how the ruling party is faring. So the DPP, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, Tsai Ing-wen's party, was swept into power in 2016 um, in a landslide. But before that, in 2014, at the last local elections, they had made huge headway in some what had previously been KMT strongholds. And that was seen as a precursor to them taking over um, the levers of the national government. You know, a little under two years later, it's it's actually more like a year and a half, given the timing of the elections. So that's what people are going to be looking at at these local polls. Um, that being said, it's important to keep in mind that even when we're talking about you know national Taiwanese politics, cross-strait relations and the geopolitics is not the top concern for most voters. And that's even more true when you're talking about these local level elections. Um, voters are concerned about things like the economy, um, you know, some of some scandals that have happened in the past or are happening now that relate to transitional justice and that question in Taiwan. And with these local level elections, you also have factors like, you know, traffic jams and air pollution and things that really don't translate well toward a thumbs up or a thumbs down for Tsai Ing-wen at the national level. Um, but there are some interesting races to keep an eye on, that being said, um, particularly the Taipei City uh, mayor race, where independent candidate Guo Wenjie is seen as a potential presidential dark horse, um, even though he's an independent candidate. All right. Well, I guess um, that gives us a lot to kind of um, look forward to. Uh, and I mean, certainly that was helpful for me to contextualize uh, the state of the uh the Taiwanese uh, domestic political scene. Um, well, Shannon, I think that's all we have time for today, sadly. Um, but thanks a lot for joining me today and providing your uh, thoughts on the situation with Taiwan. Yeah, thanks. It's always fun to get to talk Taiwan. Absolutely. And um, for our listeners, uh, if you like what you heard on the podcast, but you haven't yet subscribed, make sure you do that. You can do that on either Google Play or iTunes. If you uh, use Android or iOS, you're good either way. And if you've been listening for a while but you haven't left us a review yet on either of those platforms, uh, please go ahead and do that. That's really uh, helpful for us and gets the word out about the show. Um, and if you have a topic that you'd like for us to discuss specifically, don't feel um, like you can't reach out to us. Uh, we're very available on uh, Twitter or you can just go to The Diplomat and you can find my email publicly listed and just let me know what you'd like to see on uh, future episodes of the podcast. And a final plug, make sure you subscribe to our new newsletter on Asia-Pacific Risks. Uh, that's available at diplomat.substack.com. It's, uh, it's a new product that we've been working on and we'd also love your feedback on that. So thanks a lot for listening and we'll be back next week with more.